When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our preview of the Hellas Verona match. And I'm joined by a guest to help me with that. He is the author of Notes from Verona and Rita's War. Rick Hoff, welcome back. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a long time, far too long since we've had you on the show. I think I know. the I last know. time you were on was to preview the return leg of the 2019-20 campaign. And a I lifetime think, ago. Yeah, I think that was the first round of Serie A after the lockdown that season. So there was a, it was weird because it was the return leg, but it was in June. (laughs) And um, it just so happens that that was also the last time Napoli beat Hellas Verona. So we're going (laughs) to talk a little bit about that. Um, We won that match 2-0. And just to give you a sense of how much has changed back then, we won 2-0. And one of the goal scorers was Arcadius Milik. So that tells you just how long it's been. Yeah. Um, a lot has changed for both of these clubs. We're going to talk about that. But I want to start with the rivalry between Hellas Verona and Napoli. I think most people are aware of the animosity between the fan bases of these two clubs. I, I say fan bases, but Rick, you're a regular spectator at the Bentagodi. Would it be fair to say that this animosity is really between the ultras yeah. as opposed to the, the general population of fans? Yes, certainly the ultras, as you would expect, are... Uh take it to the, the next level, and that applies to both sets of ultras, I suppose. There is, it's hard to avoid, though, a definite north-south rivalry, and that's pretty, I'm afraid to say, kind of commonplace up here, certainly amongst football fans. They kind of look down their noses at anyone south of the Po, even, you know, so even Rome, anything south of... Emilia Romana is kind of considered southern up here. So it's a kind of quite ugly territorial rivalry, superiority. For me, it's all a wee bit unnecessary. It does give the game that extra edge. And there is some fantastic banter between the two sets of fans that does occasionally spill out over into something a bit uglier and occasional acts of violence as well, which nobody really wants to see. The Ultras definitely take it to uh, another level, as you said. What do you know about sort of the history? I know it's hard to pinpoint exactly yeah. where it all comes yeah. from, but yeah, I know yeah, you're a lover of history, so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like all these things, they're kind of lost in the midst of time and myth and folklore and stuff like that. So it's, it can be quite difficult to pinpoint exactly where things went went wrong between the two sets of fans. I mean, there's one account that mentions the date of the 2nd of January, 1983, and there were a group of Verona fans who travelled down to Napoli, and they'd actually been invited by the Napoli Commando Ultra Group from the Curva B to establish a kind of twinning, or Malagio, as they call it here, between the two sets of fans. So they were invited in good faith, and there's some remarkable images that you can still find floating about on the internet of these Hellas Verona fans amongst the Napoli fans in the Curva B having a great time, you know, singing together, chanting together in a really friendly atmosphere. But as is often the way with these things, there was a a disagreement amongst the the Napoli Ultras, between competing groups of Napoli Ultras, about that decision to to invite the Verona fans down. So a small group of the the Neapolitan fans stole the Brigati Giallo Blue banner and actually set fire to it. So that put a quick end to the um, any chances of a 
you know, a friendship or Jim Alagio between the two sets of fans. The next year, in fact, when the, the Napoli fans came up to Verona, they got a lesson friendly welcome and the Verona Ultras hunted down the Napoli fans from the Commando Ultra section, forced them to hand over their banners and then in the Verona Curva Sud, they displayed the Napoli banners almost as a kind of trophy of war. So that's one account of where things kicked off and meant badly between the set of fans. There's another story that goes back even further, in fact, in 1961-62 season, where it was the very final game of the season. Both teams were playing in Serie B at that point, and they both were in with a chance of promotion. Both at Monopoly had to win for Verona. It would have been enough, just a draw. In the event, Napoli won 1-0. There was a whiff of, I hesitate to say, match fixing about that whole game. But Napoli won and were promoted at the expense of Verona. And that's another possible origin, if you like, of the, the rivalry between the two clubs. I mean, I don't know if you, Joe, if you've got, if that's kind of familiar to you, any of that, or if you've got other yeah, those, those are um, stories that I haven't heard. I what I was trying to research it, and the most that I can find was kind of the connection to the Lega Nord political group and the idea of, like you mentioned, people looking down on the South. I think that's been around for a lot longer. Yeah, um, the Lega Nord just sort of officially, uh, you know, made a, a platform based on that. And you know, you mentioned everyone be below the the river Po and you know they have this idea of a region called Padania which is yeah. basically you know their goal as a as a political group is to separate the north and, and part of the central part of Italy from the south yeah and it seems like the Verona Ultras have kind of like we said taken that to another level in terms yeah. of the, the banter yeah. between the yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the political context in which this rivalry between the fans exists. The sense in the north, it's not necessarily one that I agree with, but the sense in the north is that the the rich industrial north is subsidising the impoverished south. And so there's a, a this kind of political argument that the north should separate itself from, from the, the southerners and it would be a much more prosperous, independent nation. So that all feeds into this sense of superiority and rivalry between um, the North and the South. I mean, it's not exclusive to to Verona, that idea. You know, it's something that mm-hmm. you can find wherever you go up here. And they have what's called the anti-Southern Triangle, which is Bergamo, Brescia and, and Verona, where these kind of sentiments really take hold. There are some funnier, lighter examples, if you like, if we can call it such, of the, the rivalry. There's a really famous banner that the Napoli fans unfurled when they came up to the Bentigodi once. It said, um, Giulietta Nazocola. Um, <laughs> and of course, Giulietta is a reference, obviously, to, to Romeo Juliet and Juliet and Verona being the city of Shakespeare and, and Romeo and Juliet. And the translation basically is, Juliet is a whore. <laughs> um, so, so you can imagine, it. I think it's actually quite funny and you can imagine how People in Verona obviously appreciated that kind of sentiment. A couple of years later, in response, the Verona Curva unfurled its own banner, which basically said, Figli di Giulietta, just talking about the Neapolitans, which is basically saying, in not so many words, well, if we're, if Juliet's a whore, you're the sons of a whore. Um, <laughs> so this is the kind of rivalry that over the course of years, you know, just and sometimes it's friendly, sometimes it's banter, if you like. Sometimes it goes beyond that. And yeah, and as I said, it creeps into territorial rivalry, racism even, which and violence, which we don't want to see at the stadium. Yeah, one of the more famous banners, which is, I mean, not as harsh as some of them that we've seen, but I think kind of captures it, the rivalry well, or the, the territorial discrimination well, was a famous one when Maradona first visited the Bentagodi in 1984 and the Verona Ultras unveiled a, a banner that said, welcome to Italy. Yes. <laughs> so uh-huh. again, exactly. insinuating yeah. that of course, Napoli is not actually yeah. a part of Italy. 
Yeah, exactly. Napoli's not part of Italy. And and that's the kind of ar- argument that they, where it begins to get ugly, I think, where they begin to suggest. Yeah. And there's a suggestion beyond that, which is you're, you're closer to Africa than you are to Italy, really. And that's really got an undercurrent of, of racism about it, I think, as well. The Maradona one is a good, it's impossible not to speak about Napoli, obviously, without mentioning Maradona. And, and he obviously plays his own part, and not deliberately, but just through sheer personality and the person he was, stoking that um, rivalry as well. And you, you know this, Joe, anyway, he played his debut for Napoli at the Bentigodi that season, his first game. And I, I should say Verona, Verona won that day. But I think there, there were something like 15,000 Napoli fans in Verona that day, just to give you an idea of the thrill around Maradona coming and playing. Um, on Sunday, we're expecting about 2,000. But he got a pretty, and the Neapolitans got a pretty ugly welcome there by the local Verona fans. You mentioned that banner. So, yeah, there was definitely a more than a rivalry that day. In fairness, I should mention that Maradona got his revenge the following year when, when Napoli won that game 5-0, I think, with a wonder goal from Maradona from just beyond the halfway line. A fantastic goal you can find on YouTube. Even the Verona players applauded him when that went in. Maybe not the fans, but the, the other players <laughs> did. Yeah, I mean, Maradona was never the one to shy away from these types of things. He definitely probably yeah. would have uh, stoked the fire a little bit in, in how for he sure, reacted. For sure. But it, that, that story does kind of go down as the one that made him understand what that rivalry was really about. Yeah, and then of so course, I mean, that just fizzled on, you know, and, and this could obviously fill an entire podcast. But what happened next at the World Cup and everything like that in Italy, yeah. that was all part of that north-south rivalry, which, you know, just became really, really ugly. Yeah, exactly. So that's a bit about the history of, of the rivalry. I want to talk a little bit about the more recent history, which is really the last couple of seasons. And I'm I'm talking more in terms of the results on the pitch. Rick, Napoli have struggled to get results against Verona in the last few meetings, obviously, the end of last season, the draw that cost Napoli Champions League qualification and at the same time allowed our biggest rival in Juventus to finish in the top four. I, yeah, I'm curious sorry about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Um, hopefully we finish in the top four this season. It's looking good, but I'm curious to know, you know, the Verona perspective on the last couple of seasons, just because I think a lot of Napoli supporters feel like Napoli just didn't show up in some of these matches, but I feel like that may not be giving... Verona enough credit for how they've performed. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of people and a lot of teams have really underestimated what's happened in Verona in the last couple of years. I mean, I watched them week in, week out. I've got a season ticket there now. And the quality is unbelievable to watch compared to what we're used to. You know, I've followed the club now for 10 years as a season ticket holder. So I've seen them go up and down, up and down between Serie A and Serie B. And to be honest, it's been awful, the quality of football and the quality of player and the results. Whereas the last two years since Juric came in, the standard has just been completely transformed. You know, the quality of what is happening on the pitch. I often judge a team, if I'm watching a game, I'll just say, can they string three passes together? And I do it with kids and I do it with adults and I do it with professional teams. And it might seem very, very simple, but just if you're a little bored at a football match, just watch and see how they put And of course, it's easy. But for Hellas Verona for many years, that was never a given. You know, three passes without losing possession or losing the ball or creating some catastrophe on the pitch, it was not a given. So the fact that we're, we've got some real quality players who are players with real pedigree, but who have somehow in the course of their career lost their way a wee bit, but have come to Verona and somehow managed to get their careers back on track. So people like Veloso, Faraoni, Lazovic, Gunter, all the stars that have come through and, and moved on, Dakani, Rachmani, Amrabat, Kumbula. I mean, the list could just go on. You could just go through 10 or 15 or 20 players who are all playing the best football of their career. So, yes, I think a lot of teams and a lot of individual, a lot of commentators are, are underestimating what what Verona are capable of now. And, you know, we're regularly taking points off UV. We're getting really good results against 
Lazio against given Milan, good, the two Milan teams, really good competitive games, drawn with Roma the other week there, drawn with Fiorentina. So Verona is no longer a place where the big teams can come and expect just to get easy points. There's a real kind of identity and philosophy, and it's great to see in Verona, just around the team, you know, there's that classic 3-4-3 formation that Juric introduced and that, that Tudor has really taken on to the next level. Yeah, I think you were a little gracious in not including Napoli in that list. But, uh, you know, prior to last season, things were great. Napoli had won nine of the previous 10 meetings. But since then, it's been a loss and two draws. It all started with the match at the Bentagodi where Chucky Lozano scored in nine seconds. And then, you know, we collapsed and we lost that match three to one. I mentioned Milik being on Napoli's team the last time Napoli won this fixture. The three goals in that match were scored by Di Marco, Barak, and Zakani, who are uh, three players yeah. who are no longer with Hellas Verona, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, Barak is still here. We still got. Barak. Oh, sorry. Yes, he, he, yeah, he came from Udinese to Verona. He's still, yeah, he's still one of our our top performing players. Another guy who came from Udinese career was really on the. What would you say? It was he was in danger just of fizzling out? He'd, he'd had some a bad back problem, I think, for a season and was really struggling to break through into that Udinese team. But he's came here and he's just rediscovered his form. He's enjoying playing football and he's, you know, he's already in double figures for Verona. So he's someone who's come here and had a really, really injected a new lease of, of life into his career. Yeah, absolutely. And then last season, I mean, we talked about the draw at the end of the season. I actually thought the match earlier this season was probably Napoli's best performance. I think, you know, it was one of those games that it just felt like the bounces didn't go our way. We hit the upright a couple of times. There was some questionable officiating decisions or non-calls, at least from, yeah. from the perspective of Napoli yeah. fans. Uh, you know, yeah. you, can, you can look at it different ways. That will do for part one. In part two... We'll talk about all the changes we've seen at Hellas Verona over the last couple of seasons. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. I do want to talk a little bit about all of those changes in, in personnel because I think it's really quite remarkable how Verona have maintained this consistency. Again, going back to our last time we spoke, I asked you back then, what your expectations were for the following season, because we already knew at that point that Rachmani had been sold to Napoli, yeah. Amrabat had Amrabat been sold to Fiorentina, and we were kind of expecting Kumbula to be sold, which I don't know if it happened at the end of the season yeah. or the end of the following yeah. one, but yeah, he eventually was sold to Roma. So, you know, I asked you then what your expectations were for that season, and Hellas finished quite comfortably in the middle yeah. of the table. Yeah. And then about a week after that season ended, we find out that Torino have signed Ivan Juric. And this is the guy that was, you know, leading the charge for those couple of seasons since returning to Serie A. When you found that out, I can't remember at the time if there was already kind of reports that this was coming, but yeah. did, your, did you go sort of immediately back to worrying about survival? Yeah, obviously it was a big blow losing Juric. But to be honest, the writing was on the wall, I think, for a while. It was clear in the tail end of that season that he wasn't happy at Verona. Despite everything he'd achieved, he didn't feel that the club's ambition matched his. So there was a sense almost of inevitability that he was going to go. And the manner in which he went, it also left a slightly bad taste in the mouth. He was one who the fans really warmed to, really embraced. And so there was a almost a sense of betrayal just about how quick he was to abandon Verona, if you like, and, and sign a new contract with Torino. So that, yeah, that, that was a bit of a blow. And then obviously there was another wave of players who went out the door that summer, not long after him. You know, we lost Sakani to Lazio. Lovato went to Atalanta. So again, there were, there were three or four of our really big players who who we lost. So that's always a concern. And then we, we weren't sure, obviously, who was going to come in. Di Francesco came in over the summer and had a disastrous first three games for this at the start of this season. And he was quickly replaced by Tudor. And Tudor's been fantastic, actually. That's been a really, really fantastic appointment as far as Verona are concerned because he's 
he's done everything that Juric did, which was set out the team well organised, um, well motivated, players all putting everything into it. But he's really built on what Juric did as well by adding a real attacking potency. And that was just something that, for all his qualities, Juric had not been able to do in the two seasons he was here. He'd tried to find a goal scorer, but there was no one. We mentioned Barak was our top goal scorer last season with just seven goals. The season before that, it was De Carmine who scored eight goals. And we had players like Stepinski, Salcedo, Lasagna, Tupta, Favile, all of whom came in and up front, but none of them really managed to to score more than a couple of goals. So what Tudor has been able to do, and I guess it's partly luck, it's partly the right personnel have just happened to be there just as he's coming into it, but he also has to take some credit for it as well, is get the team scoring goals. And I can't really overstate how many goals we're scoring. We've got three players on double figures. So we've got... A top three, Barak, Simeone and um, Caprari, Caprari, who came in as a replacement for Zaccagni. They scored 10, Simeone's on 15. So it's just exceptional for a, a club like Hellas Verona to have three players who are scoring goals like that. I'll hit you with another couple of statistics just to illustrate the point. In Juric's first season, we scored 47 goals. In his second season, we scored 46. This season, we've scored 53, and we've still got 10 games to go. So potentially, we're looking at 60 goals, maybe. And to put that into some kind of comparison, the last season Verona played in um, Serie A before the Juric era, we scored 30 goals, and we conceded 78. Needless to say, we were relegated. So this season, if we do hit that 60-goal mark, we have scored double the number of goals that we scored in the last season we were in Serie A before Juric. So it sounds obvious to say it, goals win football matches, but this is just everything that's behind Verona's um, success at the moment. It's about goals, scoring goals. I haven't validated this, but I I was listening to, there's a Hellas Verona podcast that does these like five-minute clips and if I understood correctly, I think what they said is the only other team in the top five European leagues that have three players with double digit goals in domestic competition is actually Liverpool. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's um... yeah. There was an article actually. The podcast is always worth a listen, but there was a, an article in the press, in the local press up here this week by a guy called Matteo Fontana, who's the the Gazeta correspondent. And that was basically the full-page article comparing Verona front three with Liverpool. And you can kind of massage these statistics a little bit and you can basically, yes, as a front three, all in double digits, Liverpool are probably one of the few clubs in, in Europe that can compete, which is amazing. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I mean, that's obviously some pretty prestigious competition. The other thing that that caught my attention, because I was doing the same kind of uh, math that you were doing in terms of goals that Verona are on pace for. And the other one is, uh, if you look at the points total, uh, Verona are currently on 41 points, I believe, which is still ninth in the table. So around, I think Juric finished ninth and 10th in his two seasons. But if you extrapolate that to the end of the season then you end up being on pace to finish with, I think, somewhere like 10 points more than Verona have done under Juric in the previous yeah. two seasons. So yeah. obviously it depends on the, the clubs you have to play against in that final yeah. run, but I thought that was interesting as well. Now, I want to ask you, because one guy that you almost never hear anyone talking about is Tony D'Amico, who's the sporting director at Hellas Verona. I'm curious to know your thoughts, because... I assume he's the one that's that was responsible for bringing in all these players for eventually to, yeah. to work yeah. with. And he brought yeah. in a lot of quality players. Maybe it didn't seem like it at the time, but I was looking at the transfers over the last couple seasons. And basically between the sales of Zakani and I don't know if Lovato was a sale or if uh, he returned from loan, but then the also the redemption of Kumbula, 
he funded the transfer of so many players that came into this squad that yeah. and that includes Simeone and Caprari and a whole bunch of other guys. So yeah, you know, how impressive has Tony D'Amico been as a sporting director? Yes, you have to say full credit to him. And he's not always been a popular figure in Verona and around amongst the fan base. And that obviously is all entirely dependent on results. When the club are performing well and the players are performing well, then he's a hero. His first couple of seasons here when the club was performing badly and the managers he brought in, Pecchia and um, Fabio Grosso, you know, he took a, a bit of stick for the decisions he was making. That, you know, obviously the results have changed now and, and the, the players that he has identified and has brought in have all done a fantastic job here. In particular, you have to say these guys that, completely off the radar, guys like Amrabat, Rachmani, Lovato, guys that he brought in for peanuts. And then within a year or two years, he sold on for a massive markup. So he has to take a lot of the credit for that, just in terms of his ability to identify these players and then persuade them to come to Verona, which has not always been the most fashionable, the most desirable place to come. So yeah, he deserves a lot of credit. The other strand of which he obviously is part of is the youth system here, the academy, youth football. And, and that has been another pretty productive source of players going back slightly further, you know, go back over the last five or 10 years. Zakani came up as a, a young man through the, the youth team and there's been a steady stream, two or three players every season who've come up through the Primavera squad and then right into the the first team and looked pretty comfortable in the first team. So you have to give that whole part of the operation some credit as well. And credit to the manager, credit to the sporting director for giving these youngsters the chance because in other clubs, they wouldn't get the chance. Yeah, I've actually had the pleasure of watching Hellas Verona's uh, Primavera team a little bit because both Primavera clubs got promoted last season together, even though they were both in the same division in Primavera Due. The format changed because of COVID, so it was a bit easier. It was just two semifinals, and they both managed to win. And so I saw a couple of the players that are are slowly making moves. There was one player, I think his name is Chaka Traore, that are he's now on Milan's Primavera team, which is I think considered an upgrade. And we played against Milan at the weekend. And I don't know if Destiny Udoji came through. Yeah, the sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now he's starting yeah. to become a, a popular That's name. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, he is an absolute product of the, the youth system, right? I think he was 12 and he started playing for the Hellas youth set up here. So he is a classic example of that, um, of that uh, system. In a way, it's a shame that he didn't, he was just beginning to break through. He played a, just a handful of games last season for Verona. So we didn't really get the chance to fully see what he was all about. Although people that had seen him at, at the youth level did say, you know, were impressed by what they'd seen. And by all accounts, I, I again, I haven't seen a lot of Udinese this season, but by all accounts, he's beginning to, to really make a difference there as well. And there's talk even in the press this week about him being called up for the, the Italy team. Yeah, it's been a, a pretty rapid uh, progression. Over, I think he he scored a bit of a fortunate goal. I think against Milan, and they wanted a handball. Yeah, call yeah, that's scored, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, but then he scored a another goal uh, this past round. So I think that's turned a, a few people's heads. I just yeah. want to list off a couple of the the players that D'Amico brought in in the summer because it's it's really remarkable when you when you look at it. Verona signed uh, Mertzatin and Matteo Cancellieri from Roma. Ivan Illich from Manchester City. We talked about Barak from Udinese. Gian Giacomo Magnani from Sassuolo. And Federico Ceccherini from Fiorentina. And then there were loan moves for Simeone. Martin Hongla from Antwerp. And Caprari from Sampdoria. And then there was also Lorenzo Montipo from Benevento, who I really like. I think he's having a fantastic yeah. season in goal. Yeah. And then a few players that are probably more uh, reserve players and guys like Bosco Sutolo from Atalanta and Gianluca Frabotta from uh, Juventus. So, and really, if you add up the values of all of those purchases and and loan fees, maybe once the cash in on the loans, it adds up a bit more. But it's basically the money that was earned on the sales of Kumbula, Lovato, and Zagani. So that's yeah, really impressive work. Yeah, they're, they're doing some great. He's doing some great work. There's no doubt about that. Bringing bringing in players on the short term, selling them on again, 
and that's how a club like Verona is going to yeah. balance the books and prosper. A couple of names just to highlight that you mentioned for people that are watching the game on Sunday, maybe not too familiar with the Verona team. Keep an eye on Illich in the middle of the park. He's stepping in now, really making a really maturing as a player, stepping in for Miguel Veloso, who's been out the captain Portuguese, fifty six caps for for Portugal but who's been out injured for the last three or four weeks. So Elitch has really stepped up and he's one to keep an eye out because he'll just try and, from midfield, just dictate the game and and slide in a few vertical passes up to that front three. So keep an eye on him as a, as a guy for the future. He's got a big future, I think, ahead of him. And Simeone as well, obviously. He's full of energy. And when he scores one, he tends to score three. So... Uh, so keep an eye out for him as well. He's having a fantastic season. And it's great to see a player like him who puts in so much energy and effort on the pitch and is a really thoughtful guy. He's into to Buddhism and meditation and all that as well. So it's really great to see someone like him who obviously does the work behind the scenes getting recognition and getting the goals that he deserves. Yeah, I think Napoli might be one of the few teams that he scored only one goal against because you're right, he tends to score them in bunches. And it's interesting, I didn't know that he was Buddhist. Obviously, Roberto Baggio is famously known for, uh-huh. for being Buddhist. And these days, I mean, there's so much pressure on these players to perform. And I wonder how many players actually work as much on the mental side of the game as yeah. as they should. Certainly, probably not as much as they do on the physical component. Yeah, I mean, I may have overstated it to say he was Buddhist. Actually, I I think he goes in for meditation and mindfulness sure. rather than the kind of full scale Buddhism. But certainly a a really thoughtful guy and a good player as well. Yeah, and you know that's certainly something that Napoli fans are concerned about. He scored a great goal against us, where it just seemed like he wanted it more. Um, the yeah, way he won that ball. Now I mentioned all these players that Verona brought in. It's one thing to bring in all of these players. It's an altogether different thing to get them to all work together and be a team. You already kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, can you contrast the different playing styles between Urich and Tudor? Yeah, there's a lot of common ground between them in the sense that Tudor came in and he reinstalled Urich's 3-4-3 formation a back three, two wing backs who are in the midfield four who are a real hallmark of Hellas Verona over the past two years. That would normally be Faraoni and Lazovic and then that attacking trident. So it's all about working for each other, pressing, quick transitions, sliding vertical balls through as well. But then often some really nice interplay, little triangulation of passes maybe between Ilic Caprari and Barak down one of the flanks before firing across for someone in the middle. So the difference really, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's just in that final third where Juric came in and his main task was just about establishing a kind of defensive solidity and ensuring salvation. Tudors came in obviously with a slightly more attacking mindset and really got the front three firing on on all cylinders as well. Do you think that attack-minded approach leaves you a little bit more open at the back as well? I mean, in general, it's a bit of a give and take, right? You can defend really low, but like with Juric's clubs, you're going to score less if you do that. We look at Atalanta, for example, in past seasons, they're such an attack-minded team that they tend to concede more goals, but they score so many that it doesn't really matter. I also did the math on Verona's goals conceded, and they're also on pace to give up more goals than they have, also by about 10 yeah, more goals. Yeah, than- that's exactly right, Joe. I think the numbers back you up there. We're definitely conceding more goals now probably than we, we were under Juric. Juric's first season, we conceded 51, then 48. And whereas this season already, we've conceded 44. So we're certainly on schedule, if you like, to uh, exceed the number of goals that we conceded with Juric. And so, yeah, that's that's almost inevitable, I think, isn't it? As we, we kind of throw caution to the wind a little bit. The other component of that is there's no question that our defence isn't as strong this season as it has been in the past. It's one of the great things that Juric did was just really solidify that. But when you consider that we've lost 
players like we've lost a goalie, we lost Silvestri, who is in great form. He went to Udinese. We've lost Kumbola, we've lost Rockmani, we've lost Lovato. Di Marco has gone back to Inter, although he wasn't really played in a defensive role for us. So when you lose defenders of that quality as well, and we're bringing in new defenders, so there's nowhere near the degree of consistency in our back three this season as there has been in previous seasons. Davidovic, who, who's a real fan's favourite here, big young Polish defender, who's a guy who's improved on, over the last three years, but he's he's one of these kind of gangly, awkward defenders who was always liable to go flying into a challenge and give away a penalty or a, a red card. But the fans really loved him because he, he plays with his heart on his sleeve. He's been out for most of this year and he'll be out for the rest of the season, I think. So we have struggled a wee bit defensively. We've conceded goals this season that probably we wouldn't have conceded last season. But on the plus side, we're scoring a lot as well. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts, if you like. Yeah, that will do for part two. In part three, we'll talk about the lineups and we'll make some predictions. Welcome to part three of the Forza Napoli podcast. So, so you mentioned Davidovic. Why don't we move on then to the lineups? Are there any other players? I was reading, I think Lazovic may not be able to play in yeah. this match as well. Yeah, Lazovic won't play. He's he's out. So we can expect to see Di Paoli, who came in during the January transfer window. You can expect to see him covering that kind of midfield wingback role, if you like. Other than that, I think it's a fairly settled-looking lineup. You can expect, I think, to see Illich and Tamez, who's another one who's been really good for us this season in midfield. Veloso is fit and he's named in the squad, but I think it's unlikely that he'll start, although you can probably expect to see him come on at some point. Faraone will be there, Gunter will be there at the back, Ciccarini, Casal, and then up front, I would expect to see that attacking trident that we've spoken about, Simeone, Barak and Caprari. Lasagna started for Verona against Fiorentina, but I think Barak will be favoured this time around. Was Barak suspended for that match? Or he yeah. was he missed yeah. the match, I wasn't sure why. Yeah, 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 I think so. It's quite a settled looking team, which is another, you know, great thing that Juric and Tudor have brought with them, with Pekia and with Grosso. There was a lot of tinkering. You never felt sure who your best players were. They were always making substitutions, changing the the starting eleven for no apparent reason. Whereas Juric played his best eleven, and you knew more or less, unless there was a suspension or an injury, that's who would be playing. And that again is something that Tudor has continued. And partly that's also, you know, we haven't spoken much about the weaknesses of the Verona setup here. We've spoken a lot about what's going well, but. There's no doubt that we've got a kind of small, limited squad in terms of who we can bring on from the bench, which is why we sometimes go 2-0 up against the likes of Milan or Rome. And then when we look to the bench late in the second half, we've not quite got the personnel there to make a big difference in the latter stages of the game. Yeah, you mentioned tinkering of the squad or that not happening. I think we might see some of that, at least if you're to believe the reports in the media, with Napoli. So let me quickly provide the listeners with yeah. a bit of an injury report and then I'll I'll give you my starting 11 for Napoli. We learned on Thursday that Alex Meret suffered a fracture on the left traverse process of the second lumbar vertebra, which is the same injury he suffered back in September except back then it was the third and fourth vertebrae. So he's probably going to be out for a couple of weeks. He missed 3 weeks with that injury last time, which means We'll likely call up our Prima Vera goalkeeper, Hubert Tidasek, to be the third keeper, which doesn't really make much of a difference in terms of the senior team, but I'm actually concerned about the Prima Vera because he's been very good for the Prima Vera and they're just outside of the relegation zone. They have a game in hand, so if they win that, they're in decent shape, but that concerns me more on in terms of the impact of the Prima Vera. On Friday's training report, we saw that Kevin Malqui is still working in the gym, so he's not likely to be in the squad we learned that Juan Jesus received treatment for thigh resentment. So that makes me think he's also not going to be in the squad. Fortunately, Axel Twanzebe completed the full group training, so he'll probably come in now. We always seem to have three center backs. Fortunately, uh, 
Koulibaly and Rachmani have been pretty solid, but you know, all of those guys really are backup players. What it means is we have quite a bit of flexibility in terms of the starting 11. I think the back four or five, if you want to include the goalkeeper, is pretty much set in stone. Ospina will start in goal. We'll have Koulibaly and Rachmani at center back, Mario Rui at left back, and Di Lorenzo at right back. The latest report suggests that Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa would start in the double pivot over Stanislav Lobotka, which I quite like, actually. Even though Lobotka has been very good for Napoli, I think Angisa gives you a little bit more strength, and he can probably help out, especially with defending Barak, who's obviously a big body. And we also know that when Angisa played earlier in the season, he really freed up Fabian to be a bit more attack-minded, and he looked a lot stronger when Angisa was paired with him. So that could also help in the attack. And then there have also been reports that we could see Eli Felmas and possibly Adam Unas both start. And then so you question, well, where would those guys start? Personally, I don't see Unas starting. When we had Politano and Lozano both hurt, Spalletti actually started Elmas at right wing over Unas. So I'm still expecting one of Politano and Lozano to start in the right wing, but I'm I'm leaning more towards Lozano just because Politano hasn't been great in our last couple of matches. I thought it was curious because on the Friday training report, it said that Lorenzo Insigne did personalized training for preventative reasons. And I just wonder if that was a little hint that that Napoli fans, I guess you can say, might get something they've been asking for, which is remarkably for Insigne to not start. So I'm actually thinking that we could see Elmas start on the left wing. And then even though most Napoli fans want to see Dries Mertens play with Victor Osiman, I still don't think that's going to happen. I think we'll have Zielinski in the number 10 and Osiman in the number 9. It's interesting to hear your comments on your squad and your players coming back from injury, etc. And I think it is one of the things about the Napoli squad is you've got some real options there, more or less, it seems, after... A kind of crisis within season between COVID and injuries and then African Cup uh, as well, that your squad now is more or less back to full strength and the crisis, if there was a crisis, is over and Spalletti has got really a more or less a full complement to choose from. And I, I was reading in the Gazetta earlier this week, actually, it was one of these articles that gave five reasons why um, Napoli could go on to win the Scudetto this season. And that was amongst one of the positives for Napoli that their squad was was looking in good condition. Spalletti was also identified as another reason, just his um, personality, character, the fact that he's he's won before, albeit not in Italy, but in Russia, I think, wasn't it? He won with, with, he, won with, with Zenit, he won the championship with Zenit, so he's a guy who, who probably is one of the, the best coaches, if you like, in, in Italy at the moment. The other thing which I thought was probably of most interest maybe was they're suggesting that Napoli, unlike Inter, unlike Milan and unlike Juve, don't have any cup distractions. So obviously Inter, Juve and Milan have got the, the Coppa Italia, Juve for the time being are also still in, in the Champions League. Whereas Napoli, they don't have that distraction. All they've got is the championship. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, Joe. What what you think about, of your prospects of... I don't want to jinx anything, or I know people are superstitious, <laughs> but whether, whether you think what you think of those factors, whether you think you have got a, a chance at least of giving it a, a good how you see things panning out anyway over the next 10 games. Well, what I would say is um, we felt a lot more confident before the last round, and these were all things that the Napoli fans were citing as reasons why this could be the year. But I think maybe um, on the next edition of the Gazette, there might be an article of you know one reason why Napoli might not win this Gazette. Mm. And the thing we all look to is the mentality of the club, because it seems like whenever we come up against one of these really important matches, yeah. we just seem to not, not, not show up. And, you know, I, I had a curiously, I had a very similar feeling after that loss to Milan that I did after the draw to Hellas Verona at the end of last season, where you're just, left there wondering what happened you know yeah. i mean i think i think it was a much more competitive match against milan and it was one of those games that probably could have gone either way and might have been decided by that type of goal like Giroud scored it just happened to go for milan that being said i think napoli are definitely still in contention 
I think we can't afford to drop too many more points over the balance of the season. I think we can expect Inter and Milan to still draw points, and we'll see how much those additional games impact them. Um, But yeah, I think what Napoli just has to do is focus on what's in Napoli's control, go and get these wins. I guess you could add to the you know two reasons why Napoli might not win, and not to sound so pessimistic, but it, I've talked about this on the show as well, is that we have one of the more difficult run-ins, as does Milan, I think. Inter have probably the easiest of anyone. Yeah. Uh, my hope only is that the challenges that Inter had scoring continue. Now, they beat up Salernitana, which restored yeah. Maltado's yeah. conference, and then <laughs> the result against Liverpool was probably the worst possible result that Napoli fans could have hoped for because mm-hmm. Inter left that so. match with heads yeah. high. Yes. Auto scored a screamer, so now he's confident again. Yeah, uh, I would I would agree with that actually. I think uh, for Inter that was probably the best possible result because nobody expected them to go there and get anything if they're being fair. And they actually won the game, albeit lost the tie. And to do that at Anfield is is pretty impressive. So I think they'll come back with Massive confidence from that on top of the Salernitana game, albeit against Salernitana, but they still scored five good goals. So, yeah, that will give them, I think, a wee boost going into the the run-in. Look behind you as well, Joe. Don't forget, um, you've got Juve there behind you. Who, at this point in the season, you know, they always manage to churn out results. Yeah, and I think that could be holding Napoli back in a way because... You know, a lot of the talk after the the loss to Milan was, and even in the previous matches where, you know, the draw to Cagliari, the the draw to Inter, where we seemed quite content with a draw, was, is Spalletti more concerned about finishing in the top four? Because that's always been the number one priority, but perhaps he's a little too concerned about it, even though we have fairly significant gap. To me, I mean, my ego would be hurt if Juve passed us, but... Whether we finish third or fourth is not really that big of a difference. Maybe a few million euros in terms yeah. of prizes, yeah, prize true. winnings. Yeah. But it's still a, a Champions League qualification. So what's really frustrating Napoli fans is that it seems like we're playing more to just finish in the top four when we could afford to take a little bit more risk because Atalanta has been dropping points. And mm. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to see Napoli take a little bit more risk and try to go after some of these results. Not on Sunday, obviously, of course. <laughs> yeah, especially on Sunday. So, so that's, that's a good uh, a good segue to talk about our prediction. Yeah, okay, well. yeah, sorry. That was a bit of a tangent there. I, I no, that's okay. To, it was great. To come down. But yeah, from a neutral's perspective, it, and if I can call myself a neutral on this, um, <laughs> but it is great to see a, like a battle at the top, between the top four, if you know what I mean. You know, it's it could... I think anyone in those top four could could win the thing. And I certainly wouldn't write off UV. Inter, I think, for my money, are the favourites at the moment. But anything could happen. Anything could happen. And I think I'm correct in saying, um, I think Verona are playing each of the top four in the final 10 games. So from our perspective as well, it will be really interesting to be uh, support players, if you like, in that finale. Yeah, but anyway. one of those um, kind of a bogey team, like, you know, Sassuolo, Fiorentina, Verona, these are all teams that, that's the nice thing. I, I completely agree from a neutral standpoint, even from someone who's not a neutral, this is fantastic for Serie A. It is really amazing, even if maybe the quality of Italian clubs relative to their, their European peers is not as good, but within the league, I think the competition is great and, and it makes for a very entertaining product. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I should give you my prediction <laughs> for Sunday. <laughs> I'm going to go for a draw. I think that would be the diplomatic thing to do. I'll try and build some bridges with our friends uh, from Napoli. And I'm going to go for a draw and I'll say it'll be a one-each draw with Napoli's solid defence just about cancelling out Verona's potent attack. Okay, that's interesting. So a repeat of the first meeting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to be uh, less diplomatic and extremely <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> I'm going to go with a 3-1 Napoli win, and I'm going to give uh, two goals to Osimhen, one to Fabian, and then I'll give Barak the goal for Hellas again. I know a lot of people, a lot of Napoli fans are concerned about this fixture, given that recent history that we discussed earlier, but 
I don't know why I just have this confidence that we're gonna we're gonna get the result here. I know, you know, the Bentagodi is never an easy place for Napoli to play at, and Verona have been very good at home this season, I should say. And you know this being a, a season ticket holder, yeah. eight, wins, eight wins, two draws, and four losses, which is tied with Napoli for the I think the sixth best record at home. Yeah, but Napoli are also very good away from home. We have nine wins, four draws, and only one loss, which is the second best away record, only two points behind Milan. So I think this should be a really intriguing encounter. Yeah, um, I mentioned I want to see us take a little bit more risk, and I do think that it's hard. To, it's hard to gauge what the real goal is for the club. I mean, Victor Osman was on Radio Kiss Kiss on Friday, and he said that finishing top four is the most important thing right now. But we do still believe that we can win the Scudetto. So. My only hope is that they actually play like it as opposed to like last season in that final match. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a similar kind of vein, that was a similar story to us last year. When we finished in the the top 10, there was a real sense that the foot went off the accelerator. When we got the 40 points, sorry, that would guarantee survival, the foot went off the accelerator and the players were already on their summer holidays with 10 games to play. So I hope as well for this running that, we keep going right to the very end of the season and push on for a European place. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, it would be nice to see some different clubs get a chance, even if it's in the Conference League, hopefully yeah. Uh, yeah. Europe League. But that's one of the nice things. I I don't, you know, as at the start of the season, I was very anti-Conference League, but, you know, it's really grown on me as the, as the season progressed. Rick, that's all we have time for today. But before I let you go, um, do you have anything you're working on that, that you want to share? No, in particular, I'm beavering away here in Verona. I've got a couple of books um, that are in the pipeline, which basically tell the story of wartime Verona. So they hopefully will be coming out towards the summer. Other than that, you can just find me on Twitter if you want to talk football or wine or Italy in general. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I definitely recommend. I read Notes from Verona, which was a great account of your time in Italy during COVID. So it's it's very fitting, and and you know I might just read it again now that we're kind of coming out of uh, <laughs> out of COVID. And, yeah, a bit of COVID uh, lockdown nostalgia. Why not? Exactly. <laughs> but I, I definitely need to read. Um, it was Rita's War, right? The other. Yeah. One? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I appreciate that. No problem. So you can find Rick on Twitter at Rick underscore Hoff. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti five, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back next week to review this match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.